0: Hi everyone, welcome to season two of the Asian Hustle Network podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories.
1: We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted Journeys of Abundance, Community and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian-American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well.
0: Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian.
1: And my name is Maggie.
0: And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals.
1: We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Gaurav Bhattacharya. Gaurav is CEO and co-founder of Involve.ai, a customer intelligence platform to empower companies with AI-based customer intelligence that drives transformational growth. He actively participates in the Los Angeles tech innovation ecosystem through panel discussions and mentoring. Bhattacharya started his career by founding a medical software business while still in high school. He is a Forbes 30 Under 30 alum and an accomplished technology leader speaking at major conferences and authoring several publications in this space. Gaurav, welcome to the show.
0: We're so excited to have Garab on today's podcast. And this guy is, is an absolute genius, you know, and we're so excited to hear more about his story. But before we dig deep into that, Garab, would you like to give an introduction on uh, what was your upbringing like and like how did that help you become an entrepreneur that you are today?
2: Uh, Hey, Brian, thank you for having me on the show and excited to be here. I've I've been an avid listener for so many episodes, so excited for the opportunity. Just a little bit a quick story about myself, Brian. I grew up in New Delhi, come from a very humble, poor family, lost my father to cancer when I was two years old. And my mother was a blue collar worker, so she would work really hard. As you know how immigrant moms are, she made sure that she worked many jobs to provide for the family. One of the biggest things that I think was impactful for me, where I grew up, it was not the best neighborhood and there were a lot of bullies there. So I never liked going outside and playing. My brother was a big video gamer. So I kind of, one of my silver linings was just playing a lot of video games at home and, and being in my own bubble. I think that was my inspiration. I, I really felt that with video games, I can do whatever I want to do. I can be a character. I can be in scenarios. I would play a lot of games where I was in the United States or I was in Canada. I was in Europe and I was doing cool things outside my like bad neighborhood where I grew up. And that just inspired me to do amazing things. I feel like I started coding when I was 10 years old because of it. I built my first video game at 12, which was kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, just a just a game where you could take on and be any character and do anything you want to do. You could create your own world. I think that was my story. That's how I became an entrepreneur. And as, I was, as you were alluding to, I went to high school in a coding class. I met my co-founder. She's a rockstar programmer too. And we both were nerdy kids. So in hindsight... Didn't make either of us cool, but we started our first company together. And that's kind of our story.
0: I think that's really cool. Right. And I, I think that despite your, your very humble background, I can also relate to that. I grew up uh, parts of East LA where it wasn't too safe um, as well. But man, I, I can't admire that. The fact that you picked up Cody at the age of 10, it built suddenly by the age of 12. That's insane right? And yeah. I'm kind of curious too, like, were your parents engineers? Did they push you? Did they, were they like, hey, girl, what are you doing with your time? You got to go study right now. Or was it very <laughs> like self-motivated <laughs> way where it's like one day you're like, I just want to learn how to code. And did you have any mentors or advice or did you watch a TV commercial that got you coding?
2: Oh man, what, what a great, thank you for that. I think, and it's so funny you say that, but my, my mother is very focused on my well-being, but not as much on education because she wasn't educated. And I lost, I, my father died very young when I was two years old. So I don't have like very similar parents to a lot of my friends who are always focusing, as you know, like a lot of Asian parents and immigrant parents are focused on kids, kids' education. My mother was not so much, but she definitely is a disciplinarian. She definitely wanted me to wake up early morning, work hard, give my best, you know, just like any other, I feel, immigrant parent. But growing up, I feel one of the best things that happened to me was one of the, we used to have this game called Counter-Strike. Have you ever played that game? It's a very famous old, like an old school first game. They, they should shooter call game. me old. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no not at all. That? I meant old school. <laughs> I played that game too growing up. Hey, 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 we're not, not old at all, but that was like a, like the, one of the coolest or the before Call of Duty became popular. I believe that it was Counter-Strike. So they had this kind of, you could modify the maps in that game and, I really wanted to kind of create my own maps for that game. So I started to learn code because of that. I was like, I have an opportunity. It's open source software, can create any world you want to be in. That was my motivation. I think that was when I decided to start How to Code. And talking about mentors, I, let me ask you, ha- have you had a lot of advisors? Like you've done a lot of amazing things. Did you meet people along the way that helped you? Uh, Yeah, I think mentors
0: played a huge part of my life, right? And they, they really helped me look outside the box, believe in myself. I was one of those pretty low self-esteem kind of kids that I was like, man, like I'm not going to be able to do great things. Like, so yeah, like having mentors really played a role in like myself, believing in who I really want to be. Right. So I'm kind of curious about you. It's like a- age 10, right? Like coding, age 10. That is pretty absurd, especially given the fact that this is probably what, like twenty almost 20 years ago, I assume, like that's a different time period to be learning how to code. Right. So like, what was the, what was the one catalyst that led you down that path where it's like, as you mentioned, like your mom was very strict, very, very disciplined on you. Like, who was that person that was like, like, like you should learn how to code.
2: Uh, I think I, I really look up to my brother. I would say my brother was a big mentor for me. 'Cause we were for a long time our family was very poor, but he was very creative. And I don't think I'm that creative, but he has a creative gene in his family. And he was always very entrepreneurial and very risk-taking. So he was doing things like he was the first person to migrate to the United States in the family. He would always do things that are outside the norm and try to strive for it. I think he was definitely my a big motivation for me to look up to. And I would say that he would be my first advisor. But just like you along the way. Super lucky. I met incredible people. People when we were starting out our first company, people I met someone who was, she was a rock star at not just engineering, but she was really good at sales. So she taught me how to do sales, which is an incredibly hard skill to master, I believe. Then I met someone along the way for this recent company who became, who's our venture capitalist. His name is Mark and he's on my board and he's teaching me everything about finance and venture capital and how to raise money, how to run a company. Been incredibly blessed and very grateful for people I've met along the way who, who've who helped me get here.
0: Definitely. What strikes me about your answer is how humble you are, right? And how much of a learner's mindset that you're able to take in. I feel like this, the quality is so important in entrepreneurship or anything in general in order to be successful is that you have to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to take a step back and be like, I'm not the expert in this field. And that's okay. Like, I want to be able to to learn from everyone around me. And I, I really like the fact that you're so humble to the fact that you view yourself and everyone else sort of as... As mentors and mentees and learning from each other all the time. I really like that a lot. And congratulations on being a forge 30 under 30. Thank I'm you. not surprised. I think this is well-deserved. And I want to talk a little bit more about your current company, Involve.ai. Like what exactly is it? Uh, from a brief description of it's a customer intelligent platform to empower companies with AI-based customer intelligence that drives transformation growth. And looking, if you guys can't see, Gaurav actually has almost like a chart of his product in the back uh, that we can see if you guys maybe scroll over to our YouTube channel, you'll probably see this recording inside our YouTube channel. But yeah, tell us about this product. Like, what what was the inspiration behind it? And like, how did you come about creating this company? And what company number
2: is this? Yeah. So it's company number two for me. And it's a very cool story on how it started, but it also epitomizes kind of how startups are and how how you just don't know what your future is. But like you said, having that growth mindset and learning mindset is just so important. But we started this company as a very different idea. Our idea was we're going to create a consumer company where we're going to send people to have events and volunteer and do good for the community. Because we really wanted to do good and have a technology that supports anyone from anywhere in the world to be able to do something with their time and come together and help a nonprofit help communities help NGOs succeed. And when we started that, we kind of started honing on on who our ideal customer profile is because we had a pretty broad vision. And one of the biggest challenges we had, Brian, was in in a lot of companies, sometimes you plan things to go a certain way and they didn't. We didn't have good product market fit. So we would lose, even though we had half a million users, we would almost lose 8% of them every month. So drop-off was really high. Churn was a big issue for us. In order to solve that, being engineers, me and Samia, my co-founder, one of these nights, we were just, you know, I think we were having wine. We were really upset. We were just disappointed in how, where we wanted to go and where we were. So we just started coding. We took out our laptops and we were like, let's try to figure out which users are our best users so we can really double down on those users and kind of forget about everybody else who's not sticking around on the platform. So in order to do that, we built this kind of dashboard, which is like one of my first mock-ups, you know, kind of how it's going to look like. And we started taking a lot of data from multiple sources, just to try to figure out which users are happy and healthy, and what can we learn about our customers from data that we already have? Like, could be utilization metrics, how people use the product, and how much time are they spending on our media, on our social media, on doing different events. And the results were phenomenal, Brian. Like, what we found was incredible. And at that moment, we knew that as a company grows, you kind of get away from your users and your customers, but you have like Slack messages with them, emails with them, phone calls, Zoom recordings, you know, just these behavior patterns on how they use their product that can tell an amazing story. And that's what we built. So we decided to pivot almost like Slack, how Slack was a gaming company for many years and they built this collaboration tool internally. We decided to pivot and... That's what Involve.ai is. It's a simple platform that can take your data and we democratize customer data, tell amazing stories about your customer on how happy and healthy they are, how unhappy they are, what are they thinking, what are they saying, so that executives and leaders in a company know exactly what's going on with their customer base. And customer-facing teams can be very proactive and data-driven on how to solve these day-to-day customer issues that can happen.
0: Wow, that is that is awesome. I, I think that a very silver lining is that uh, when you're frustrated, it's just cold.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or drink. Right or drink, right? <laughs> That's yeah. what we were doing. I think we were.
0: <laughs> so I mean, let's talk a little bit more about this. And the biggest takeaway I got from that answer is focus. Right. I think that, like, for most first-time founders, early-stage founders, it's like it's really hard to focus on one thing because essentially you don't really know who your target audience is at the moment. Right? Yeah. You know, you're building totally. your product. You know what what you're trying to do with that product, but like. Sometimes what you think is the audience is not quite the audience. So So my question is like, when, when you realize that drop-off rate is decreasing 8% month by month, how did you reframe everything to realize that, Hey, like this is our target audience profile. Like what kind of factors did you list out? Like age group, demographics, profession, industry, location, like how did you pinpoint that, that customer profile?
2: Yeah, I think it was really hard. It definitely was extremely hard because we had a lot of hypotheses, Brian, and a lot of times our hypotheses would be proved wrong. Like we had this hypothesis that you know college students would be a great profile, so Then we pretty quickly figured out that that's not working. Then we moved to companies, and we were like, okay, the young tech professionals are going to be the best people who are going to be doing it, and then. We disqualified or disprove that hypothesis. The next one was executives like VPs, VP of Marketing, like they would be extremely motivated to help nonprofits and community, and that worked for certain areas and demographics, but it didn't for others. So I think we did a lot of experimentation, and and I would almost say sometimes like our lack of focus helped us find the answers. So even the focus is extremely important. I feel there's this creative process that you almost have to go through where you don't know what you're going to do in your life, right? Like it's almost that moment when you're 20 years old or 18 and you're trying to figure out, am I going to start a podcast show or am I going to be an engineer somewhere? Am I right? Like you're just trying to figure out what you're going to do in life. And until you do that thing, you don't really know if it's going to work or not. So I feel as much as focus is extremely valued, I feel there's also an important thing to just have fun and, and go through your creative. Journey and figure out what the right
0: answer is. Yeah, I'd say that everybody goes through that moment in their life of what am I doing? I would say that a moment of unclarity and unfocus is probably one of the best and worst time of anyone's life. Because, yeah,
2: best and worst. I think you described it perfectly. Do you have you had a moment like that?
0: Of course, all of us do, right? A lot of us are are, start, are realizing like. I can be anything that I always wanted to be. But at the same time, it's like, once you start working towards that goal, it's like, am I really happy? And that's the two things that has to be aligned because like you have to feel yeah. happy about the direction that you're going towards. But like, I think I think Steve this support too, right? When he got fired from Apple, it's like the best and worst thing in his life. And I feel like that's the same thing with figuring out your product market fit. Product market fit and originally, it's like, what I think is a customer is no longer a customer. And now we have to pivot our company. This is like the worst, the best time, except that you're always under pressure because you know, you have, you're running a company, you have to make payroll, you have to generate revenue and be sustainable, right? So there's a lot of pressures. Okay. So the question I, I have for you, it's like, I understand that you probably went through your fair shares up and downs. How have you and your co-founder worked together to overcome these challenges and like, how are you able to work together cohesively for, for you to be able to take in his opinion, your opinion, and make that, that work? And how do you guys compromise whenever there's a conflict?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. It sounds like what you're asking is, what's the recipe for a conflict resolution? right? Like whenever ideas don't align with your co-founder or with the person you work with.
0: Especially with a pivot. It's, that's difficult yeah. as heck. So how do you yeah. make that work?
2: <laughs> Man, I I think it was really hard. And just sincerely, I just re- remembered the day. I remember there was this one day where I kind of knew that things are not working. I you know just had it in my gut. Like there's, we had customers. We had real customers. We had people who were using the system. We had companies who were paying us. We I think we had about two to three million in annual revenue already from what you were doing. So it wasn't that it wasn't like we were down to zero. Like I think it's always amazing when you launch something and everyone hates it and no one uses it. You have clear signs, but the worst is when you have mixed signs, right? Like that that's kind of where we were. But I almost had this one day, I remember I had this feeling it's not working. And I went to my co-founder. The question she asked me was, what are we going to do next? And I kind of pitched her this idea that, you know, let's do what we built internally. And she said, she said, she told me, I understand it is exciting, but it's unproven. Like we don't know even if that's gonna work. So somehow I was able to convince her and kind of figure that out. But the the biggest problem we had was we had employees and staff that I had gotten super excited. I had motivated them on a vision, right? And they were like waking up every morning to make the world a better place, saying this is the vision. We're gonna help communities and nonprofits. And then I had VCs and venture capitalists who had taken money from and had sold them on this vision. So now we had to go back to them and almost unsell them on the earlier vision and sell them on this new vision that in our core and the bottom of our heart, we knew may or may not work. That was so hard. We were, we had incredible imposter syndrome. I just remember like being depressed for hours and days, just thinking about how am I going to realign everybody towards this new goal where we don't even know if that's going to be successful. I think that that was incredibly hard. So I, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but just reliving those days, I feel oh, man. conflict. Is hard and cannot it shouldn't be avoided. And I think the only way to have a good conflict resolution is just have open and transparent conversations. And that's what we did. You know, we went to our board and we told them that this company we feel is not working out, and here's why. And we have we have two paths. We can either return the capital we have left so that you guys don't lose all your money, or we can try this new thing that we don't know if it will succeed. We have some early signs, but it's not proven yet. We did the same thing with our staff and said, anyone wants to leave can leave, or people who want to stay can go on with the second journey with us. And. Our board was incredibly supportive. They said, hey, you know, we'll be back to you guys as founders, not the idea. And some people left in our team. Like some people walked out the door and and said, you know, help us find other jobs. Some of them stayed. I remember like six people stayed and eight people left. So it was incredibly hard to go through that journey. But I think being transparent and open and being vulnerable really helped us go through that conflict. Oh man, that
0: story just just made me feel like you know, that punch in the gut feeling where it's like, oh man, like that's hard. And that's, that's, it's relatable,
2: that. right? Like I'm sure everyone goes through yeah. something like, have you had an, an incident like that where you had to make a really hard decision
0: of course it's a part of business right it's it's very normal and i want more and more listeners to hear about these struggles and stories because like i feel like nowadays it's like entrepreneurship is so glamorized in media where it's like you get nice cars, the nice food it's nice truly whatever it is to find life yeah it's like very like one percent of like people actually get up there because i feel rates like super high right and i feel like just you sharing like the tough conversations, the management, the pivot, the communication with your co-founder, it's it's all crucial to being successful as a founder, right? But the best, the most important part is what you said was right. As early stage investors, like for, for angel investors, they invest not into the idea, but you, right? And I feel like that's, that's probably the best, the right decision because when you look at a lot of successful companies out there, they make pivots all the time, right? But the one thing that, that stays... Very uniform is that the founders don't quit. The founders yeah. always find a way to, to make things work. And fortunately, and unfortunately, as long as you don't quit, Rob, the company will not fail. Right? Obviously, there's other factors too, like <laughs> you run out of money and whatnot, <laughs> then, then you fail. But like, I think that when every company is like truly really plugged into your ecosystem and you understand the market really well, and you understand your audience, you're gonna find something that, that works overall. And I commend to you and thank you for so much for sharing that experience too about how you pivot and resolve issues with your co founder, because it's not an easy thing, right? So I know earlier you mentioned that at one point you were generating like two to $3 million per month, I believe. And that's, that's an absolutely crazy number to realize that this isn't working. So at what point did you make that decision? And what kind of metric did you look at to be like, oh, wow, even though we're making this amount, we're not having a product market fit. And I, I think you're absolutely right with that. When you mentioned that, you know, sometimes when you launch a product, you want it to fail because then you know exactly what doesn't work. But when you launch a product that what works, but doesn't work completely, where do you even
2: start? Right? Yeah. Oh, man, totally. I think it's like another analogy. And I was talking to someone else and I'm sure you've seen this too, is that one person on your team who is brilliant and you love him and you keep them, right? And there's one person on your team who's a complete idiot. And you know, everyone's saying that person is a bad fit and you know exactly that person's a bad fit. But then there's that one person who is average at their job and they can grow this potential, but they're not performing really well. They're actually nice, a nice person. Like you love and you like hanging out with them. How do you let that person go or make a decision on what to do? That's the hardest. I feel just kind of giving you that analogy here and and I think I'll go back to one thing that you shared with me. There was time where we had a lot of growth hypotheses and we built like a spreadsheet with which literally said in, and the spreadsheet started with, what is one of our hypotheses? is like reduced churn rate as an example. And then the second column was like, how important is it? Like on a scale of one to five, how important is this like to work? And the hypothesis is like five. It's really important. The next column was, and pardon my French, where we said, how fucked are we going to be if it doesn't work? <laughs> and I was like, one to five and we said five. And every time, and then we just went one by one trying to like, Hypoth- like correct if you're doing It's called The Lean Philosophy. There's a book by Eric Ries, The Lean, Lean, the Lean Startup. That's the philosophy. So you're trying to just figure out what works, what doesn't work and, and really bias your opinions on data. And some of the results we were getting is that we just don't have good product market fit. Now, either we can try a few more things and try to make it work. And I think I just went back to saying, I've been at this for four years, and we've tried so many things. And a lot of it was me not being an expert, and and us not being a great team to execute on this. But then we just the de facto is maybe the market's not ready, and the market's not there, and maybe it's just not going to work out. Even if Steve Jobs was trying to do this, or even if Elon Musk tried to solve this problem, maybe it's not us. Maybe it's the market, and market's telling us something. So. I think that was a decision. I think I'll also go back to one point you made. is also about happiness. I feel I feel like we tried so much and failed again and again that it just didn't. We didn't feel happy. Like I remember with my co-founder and some of our key staff, I built a we built like few more tables of things we could try, and everybody was it just there it, it was just sense of like unhappiness. We were like, we're not happy trying to solve these problems again. And and that was the moment where we knew in our guts that's not going to work out. It probably pivot is the best way to go or, or maybe closing doors. We even thought about, I remember I was reading this blog about how to sh- shut down your company and I had like a checklist and it's the hardest feeling. Like I've never done that before, but it happens, right? Like people don't talk about it, but there's so many companies that, Shut down. And so many founders who have, who probably search for that and follow a checklist, it right? May include sending a goodbye email to your users, returning capital to your VCs, how to public, how to like do public facing things, how to do compliance things internally. I was ready to do that. It's, it's a hard feeling and, and, and doesn't get talked about, but it happens.
0: Oh, man. That's just gut wrenching things to hear because like, There is always some sort of relatability with that, right? I think as founders, it's like, the highs are highs, the lows are lows. And like, the fact that, you know, you unfortunately was looking into that, I I can't imagine how tough that was for you to feel. Oh, man, it's, I know, uh, I wrote my own startup myself, so I completely understand that feeling where it's like, Things are great. audience oh, are not great. And the, the moment that it switches from good to bad is an like instant. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> I didn't have time and to solve. And the worst,
2: yeah. And the worst part, it can happen in the same day, right? <laughs> yeah. You can have like an amazing thing and a really bad thing same day.
0: Yeah, it is a very common yeah. theme with all startups. Not just yourself, by the way. <laughs> we have a yeah. lot of people on the podcast that very very common theme, but. Overall, it's like, it's the founder that that makes a huge difference. Are you still having fun with your stuff? Are you still passionate? Because Mm -hmm. once that passion runs out, your company will die, right? Exactly. But once you have the passion, you'll overcome any challenges. Even even no matter how bleak everything seems, you're going to find a way and solution to make it work as long as... So you don't give up, your mental health's good. And you know, you, you cut deep down your gut, you kind of know what to do already. So I'm kind of yeah. curious too. It's like as you are pivoting your product and you found a new niche and you didn't quite know how it works yet. Uh-huh. There's two parts to this question. One of it, how did you convince your investors to believe in you that anyone ever pulled out when you made that pivot? And the second part is what was your user acquisition plan? I was kind of curious about that.
2: Yeah. Oh man. Both both good questions. So I'll give you the the kind of the real version of the first part. I remember. So I had a lot of stockholders. Some were VCs. Some were early angels. Some were just early staff members. And and I think it's a matter of belief. And it's hard. It's hard. I feel. I feel when we went to our VCs and our investors, everyone follows what the lead investor is doing. That's very common. If you see in companies, the lead is the closest to the company. They know exactly what's going on. They spend the most time with the company and and they have the most equity. They've put in the most amount of money usually. So our lead investor was extremely convinced that we can succeed as founders, which we're incredibly blessed to have because even though we didn't work as a company, they believed in us and they believed in me. So they kind of signaled to all the other VCs that this can work and they kind of saved anyone causing legal troubles or trying to pull out or get equity back or all of those things. But there were people who had worked with Brian, who had spent a lot of years working and trying to sell this product and build a company together who didn't believe in it anymore. And they had the opportunity to sell their stocks. And a lot of them did. And a lot of them did at really low prices, like extremely low prices just do like someone had a a big chunk of the company and I don't share this that quite often but they they got out for $10,000 or something like that cuz they felt that that is more than anything that the company can ever become so that's just a hard feeling to go through that and a couple of angels backed out as well and they you know they they wanted their money back which we try to you know loan or do whatever from the company funds to make sure that we can do the right thing for everybody. I think that was hard that was That was really hard to like like see the dis- dispassion that some people had towards. Uh, failure and just thinking that since you failed once you'll always fail. I think that was that was hard. I think that was your first question. So the second question you were asking is kind of how did we run about user acquisition? I feel that the approach we had, Brian, was feedback. We really wanted to learn and generally were were curious about the new market because we were not experts in it. And this time we just went like cold email people, LinkedIn message the audience, like our our thesis was that hey SaaS companies, they go through a lot of churn, they'll be ideal buyers, people like CEOs and chief revenue officers and chief customer officers could be really good buyers. So we just cold reached out to people and said, hey, this is what we're building. Do you have some time for feedback? And a lot of them, as our pitch got better, they started saying on feedback calls, this is really interesting. If you have it, I may even check it out. And we would say, "Great, we actually have a demo we can show you." And that's kind of how we landed our first users. It was just like cold outreach, not trying to sell anything, but understand and learn from the market. That is
0: that is definition of hustle right there. And hopefully, you guys have a really good pitch because you know, whenever I check my LinkedIn, I get hundreds and hundreds of pitches. I'm <laughs> just like, "What is going on?"
2: <laughs> I bet you do. Hey, maybe you search for my name, and I may have pitched you like a year ago. i am
0: heard shit. No, it's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at some point, at some point we have to put in the hustle and that that like work, right? Because Yeah, you can always hustle, right? It is a network, it is a network effect, right? Because once you get enough users and critical mass, it's like it starts growing on its own. And that's the best feeling because right. that's when you quote unquote call it the product market, uh, market fit, right? Because people sure. retention's high, interest is high, standards are high, growth is high, product market fit's awesome. But I think for most misconception about building your product is that, is that when you put it out there, guess what? Your first week, two weeks, you're not going to get any traction and it sucks. You know, that feeling where it's like, oh crap, like I'm building something that no one wants to do. And the fact that you have to take it back and have that growth mindset to continuously reiterate on it and improve upon it is extremely important to defining that, that extreme part of market fit and building a successful product. So it takes a lot of grit and grind, more than people ever think it's going to be, right? So as a second time founder, I'm going to have to ask you this question. Do you believe the product focusing on the products more important or distribution is more important?
2: Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah, I know. I know. I think, oh man, I think I'm a product focused founder. So I would say product is more important than distribution. And it doesn't have to be the world's best product, but it has to be the world's best product for your audience, right? Like it has to be the audience you're trying to serve, or at least the starting audience you're trying to serve, they need to find incredible value with your product. And I think that is just phenomenally more important than having great distribution. That is my thesis because I'm a product led founder. Distribution is extremely important, but it's all it's so much easier when you have a great product and a value proposition that resonates with your users, then you're just selling a vision and a dream and you're just using psychological tricks on people, <laughs> trying to convince them to buy, my opinion. Well, what is yours? I'm curious now, what do you think? What is more important?
0: Um, I, I think products are really important, you know, like finding that, that- that good user experience, but I also feel like distribution is equally important, but not as important as product itself. Because if your distribution is strong, but your product doesn't quite fit, then guess what, you're gonna fail, right? But at the same time, it's like I feel like with a great product, like if you hustle enough, like it you'll convince the world that it's a great product because it really is, right? But yeah. it all comes down to understanding what you said earlier: your audience. Like, do you understand your audience? Does this take care and solve the problem at hand? Right, and as a solving the problem, what it piss off the users to use this product because it's slow, it's like gunky, it's it like hard to use, it's hard to understand all these things, right? Uh-huh. Like given nowadays, there's so much resources out there. Uh, you know, you can ask for everyone's opinion. Not everyone. You don't want everyone's opinion, but you can ask enough opinions to like redefine and revamp your product. Because guess what? Like we all want the best for you. We all want a product that's easy to use. Right. So I agree with you. I think products should come first. Definitely. And I have a question too. Like, I feel like, you know, running a company is just really difficult. Like how do you find, how do you time manage your time and time block your day where it's like, this is grow out time. It's work time. This is whatever fun time. Right. I do find that most, most founders, especially startup founders work seven days a week, you know, 60 hours a week, hundred hours a week. And I, I feel like the grind, in hustle culture, it can be very detrimental. Just because, like, oh, we can't stop; we gotta keep moving; we gotta keep going. So, like, for your personal self, like, how do you find time to care yourself?
2: Yeah, it's 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 very hard. I I, I feel wow, what a great what a great question. I feel I'm just so bad at it. Right? <laughs> I think I'm really bad at time management because I like to wander. I really enjoy wandering on topics and things. And I like to just think about things. And and I'm always late on delivery timelines, I feel, just because I get really engaged in topics. And that sometimes leads to a lot of original thinking. Like I, I was reading somewhere that Martin Luther King didn't come up with, you know, like all the phrases that he used that become, became so iconic, like until 5 a.m. in the morning of the same day. And there's a lot of like, Studies that show procrastination and being lazy or delayed on things can actually help you be more creative, which I don't know is true or not, but, (laughs) but I, but I am like that I am, which doesn't help because I feel a lot of founders are like that and they spend tons of time on things where they're not really working that hard, but they're just wasting time. And then they end up working 80, 90, hundred hour weeks. <laughs> and I do too. Sometimes I work 10 hour days for seven days a week. Yeah. But I don't think I'm working hard on, like I'm not working every single day being completely productive. So maybe there are some people who are very productive and they know how to manage their time. They probably can do it sooner. And I don't know. I don't know what their best, I, I, I'm I'm digressing here, but I think it's hard. I don't think I have been I'm efficient with my time, but I enjoy not being efficient with my time and a lot of founders do, and that's why they waste a lot of time and ultimately yeah. end up working 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 hours a week. Yeah. where they could have just done it in 20. What do you think?
0: <laughs> uh I really I really appreciate your level of transparency. And letting us know that this is something that you're still working on. so, which is awesome for us to hear too, is the level of authenticity that we can relate to. I, I personally think that everyone works differently and you got to find what's best for you, right? Some people yeah, like to work bad. really fast. Some people like to work slow, but at the end of the day, it's like, can you get your stuff done at <laughs> the highest level? Yeah. That is the part that matters the most because you can't use the cookie cutter mode of like an entrepreneur that works really fast. Works- really efficiently works really hard that's not everyone right no one not, not everyone fits into that mode and you have to find things that work for you and sometimes we see people are like oh you should wake up 5 p.m and do this and that i think if it's not kind of myself i'm kind of a moaning person but trying like kind of other people it's like some people can't function at five for me i can't function past 10 right so it's like you have to find what works for you you have to find what works where you're sitting at your desk and you're doing the great work that you do and that zone is your zone of genius, right? No one can yeah, take that away from I you. What you're your zone of genius, is like, it doesn't matter how you get there. As long as you get stuff done and your mindset's great and you don't have self-doubt and you're productive. Like some people enjoy working 100 hours a week. That's fine. As long as your mental health is great. Some people like having boundaries and working very set hours. It's great too. As long as your mental health is great. So it's back to who you are as a person. What works for you, what doesn't work for you. It's not a one size fit all right? The biggest thing yeah. is like, is your north star good? Are you getting your work done? Are you putting out the great product? in the world that you think that can happen? Because great work takes time and everybody works differently. That's just my opinion. I like that. I really enjoy your feedback, app yeah. Of course, man. So we have one final question. So we genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have one final question, Rob. And that question is, if you can give advice to your 10-year-old self,
2: what advice would that be? You know, one just comes to mind and it's so cool that you asked that question because I've struggled with this a lot. I feel I struggle a lot with the imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of immigrants, Asians do, right? Like if you think about it, we have a lot of imposter syndrome because of our circumstances, how we grew up and trying to fit in. I feel just believe in yourself is one advice I would do. I would give it. It's just so incredibly generic. <laughs> what does it even mean? But I feel I think that's something that I could have used a lot at every 10 years old, at 12 years old, at 16, at 20, at 30. And I bet I bet, even when I'm 90, I could give advice to my 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old to just believe in myself. I think believe in yourself would be one thing I would tell my younger self.
0: That is that is absolutely good advice, right? I think that either you believe in yourself or you found someone else that believes into you that unlocks your true potential. And that goes a long yeah. way. And I feel like what you shared, it's like very typical of a especially like an Asian immigrant mindset where it's like, you know, a lot of times where your your parents want to be, want you to fit into a certain mode. Right. And sometimes that uh, might not be your zone of genius. So that kind of actually destroyed your self-esteem and now you don't believe into yourself. But it really takes that one person that believes into you that you can do it. And in actuality, I I firmly believe that everyone out there is capable of doing great things it's just sometimes that unfortunately people aren't in an opportunity or environment that bleeds into them, you know? So I, I, I do, I do agree with your answer and I like that a lot. So grow up, where can our listeners find out more and reach out to you? Yeah.
2: All right? Absolutely. My name is Gaurav Bhattacharya. I'm on LinkedIn. I think that would be the easiest way to connect to me. Uh, but I'm also at Garav at Involve.ai. If anyone has any questions, I can answer, help them with their careers or anything that maybe I have gone through that you're going through right now. I would love to hear from you and help out. I think those would be the two best places to reach me. Awesome.
0: Well, Gaurav, thank you so much for sharing your story, your, start- your startup journey with us huge inspiration can't wait to see what you're going to accomplish in the next 5 10 20 30 years but thank you so much for being on our podcast today
2: awesome thank you so much thank, yeah. thank you brian thanks for your time of course hey guys we hope you enjoyed this
0: episode please subscribe to the show
1: we would like to get to the top 10 on itunes so be sure to leave us a five-star review we release an episode every single wednesday so stay tuned
0: thank you guys so much